Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I have loved all the interviews that I've done. This is probably one of my favorites because it is just so, so informative about trauma. You hear me talk about trauma a lot on the show, and it's something that on some level, all of us, if not many of us, go through. And we've all, to some degree, been traumatized by the pandemic. And I wanted to bring an expert on who could really help us understand what trauma is and how to work with it. And Elaine Miller is one of the best out there. You probably haven't heard of her name and I love that. I love that I can bring you people that you may not have heard of that are just such experts in their field. And this woman, she's been on the front lines of trauma. She's been brought to 39 countries who have been through traumatic situations as well as just doing her own work in the field. And she really understands what trauma is, how it exists in the body and how we can treat it and heal from it as well. So a little more about Elaine. Elaine Miller-Karras is the Director of Innovation, Vision, and Creativity and co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute and author of the book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resilience Models. She's worked internationally to bring healing to the world's community. Her models to date have been brought to 102 countries in Asia, Africa, North America, the Mideast, South America, and Europe. She's a recognized international speaker and author. Elaine's book was recently selected by the United Nations Curated Online Library as one of the innovations that can help meet the UN's sustainable developmental goals. Elaine is a founding member of the International Transformational Resilience Coalition and a leading advocate with regard to the impact of climate change on the human condition. She has about two more pages worth of bio. And you'll see right from the interview, in addition to all her credentials, Elaine just has the warmest, warmest, most loving heart. I really think that you're going to enjoy this discussion. Before we dive in to my interview with Elaine, I want to talk to you about our sponsor for this week. And I think this sponsor, it's very, very timely. You've heard me talk about them before. It's betterhelp.com. So BetterHelp is a worldwide service to connect you with a licensed counselor from anywhere in the world. So if there's something that's interfering with your peace or is preventing you from really feeling like you can move forward in life, like a global pandemic, (laughs) then reaching out to an expert at this time could really, really serve you. You hear me talk a lot about how important the role of a counselor or a therapist is And if you don't know where to start, go to betterhelp.com. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available to you. So you can really connect to someone that has the expertise you need, even if they're not living in your city. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a more peaceful, fulfilled life today. 
You can visit their website and read testimonials and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health and wellness with the help of an experienced professional. So a special offer for over and non with it listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash over it. Again, that's 10% off your first month at betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash on with it. And now on to my discussion with Elaine. Oh, hi, Christine. Hi. hi. Nice to meet you, Jill. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for being patient with my rescheduling last week. I really appreciate it. Well, we are definitely living in unusual times. So I'm trying to be as flexible as I can with my own schedule with others. And and, uh, of course. Yes. I think flexibility is one of the many, many, many things we are learning in this time. And I'm so happy to have you on. Um, I'm a little bit new to your work. Jill just had such an incredible experience at your virtual workshop and you do work that we just know, we just know how important it is and we really respect it. And my audience needs to hear it. So I'm really excited to have you on the show, especially now. So forgive me if my question, my questions are very, um, elementary because one, I want to, you know, educate my audience. And two, like I said, I'm new to you. I've looked at your bio and Jill's told me a lot and I'm just so touched by the work that you've done because a lot of people... I appreciate it. Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of people say they work in trauma because they've done workshops (laughs) and work with, you know, white privileged people and you have been on the the front lines. So just, just deep, deep respect. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much. I've been really humbled by working internationally as I have, as I've gone to different countries and been able to be greeted by amazing people who have welcomed me into their homes and their communities. And I have, I don't know who's learned more from whom, but I have certainly learned um, about trauma from, you know, a very wide perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start there. How would you define trauma? Well, we have some simple ways. And you'll hear when, as we go through our time together, I sometimes think less is more. It can be too much, too fast. Like let's say an earthquake where all of a sudden we weren't expecting something. And the result of it is that we can become what we say dysregulated inside. And it can change the way we feel, the way we think, you know, how we sense but it can also be um, too much for too long. And if you think about child neglect or or racism, um, there's many isms that we could put in the too much for too long um, or too little or too much for too long. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what we're, in terms of those simple definitions, um, we also kind of segue into talking about big T trauma, little T trauma, and cumulative trauma. So big T trauma would be of your own definition, but they're those things that really um, disturb us to the most degree, like war, for example. For some individuals, the virus, the COVID-19, is a big T trauma in how it's impacting every aspect of one's life. But there's also little T traumas, and little T traumas have to do with um, not that the person themselves did not experience it as a big T trauma, but they're the things that can be trivialized by saying, oh, that's just your dentist appointment. That's no big deal. You just kind of buck up and get there. But the dentist scares you out of your wits and you um, feel like you're never the same after you leave the dental office. So um, we are talking about perception, right? Whether something's a big T or a little T. And then finally, cumulative traumas are the isms of the world, racism, homophobia, um, colonialism. Um, It can be um, living in poverty, 
and what that's like. Um, cumulative trauma right now, if we're looking, again, we're talking about the virus, um, the virus could be someone's big T trauma and cumulative trauma in how it's impacting the world around us. So we try to make those definitions very open and fluid. And it's not necessarily I'm a licensed clinical social worker that I go to our diagnostic book, the DSM-5 or the ICD, it's called the ICD-10 codes and say, oh, these are the categories. Um, so we try to make, it, make the definitions of trauma in our, um, in our models simple that just, just a person, a regular person can understand. Most of us, your listeners, can remember something that's happened to them that was too much too fast or too little for too long. Mm -hmm. Can you go over those categories again? Because I think people will really want to yeah. bookmark those. So, so too little for too long could be things like child neglect. Mm -hmm. Too much for too long could be um, something like domestic violence. And so those two categories are... Are, are some of the ways to conceptualize things or something that happens, um, you know, it's too much too fast, like an earthquake or it could be an assault that you weren't expecting. Mm, mm. And I, do you feel that, because a lot of times on this show, so the format of the show is I have experts like you that come on every Saturday and then during the week, I do unscripted, unedited, unproduced coaching sessions with people. And they're very therapeutic in a lot of ways. They're not just, let's talk about your goals. We go pretty deep. And sometimes I'll ask, did you have anything traumatic or really significantly challenging happen? And people will go, oh, not really. But then they'll tell me something that I would put in the traumatic category because it was it was shocking or it was too much or it was too little. Do you find that that people tend to like not recognize a traumatic experience, like don't realize it's trauma because it's not something as severe as abuse? Christine, that is a great question, and absolutely. And this is—I'm so glad that you asked this question in the beginning because what happens is that sometimes people are just so used to having a stressful life that they don't even categorize that this thing that's happening to them actually could be impacting how they think or how they feel or how they're sensing their world. So I'll give you an example. So I worked with a with a, a person one time who. Um, I worked with, it was a couple and the wife was saying, well, he's disconnected from me. He's not paying attention. And the husband said, well, I really try. I don't know. She always seems to, to get so hysterical about me not doing everything she wants to do. I mean, kind of a common script, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I always like to find out, you know, what's happened to you in your life that might have, you know, cultivated this environment that you might not perceive your wife as being challenged or that you know, whatever might be happening between the couple. So I asked him that question, just like what you did. And I said, well, he said, oh no, nothing's ever happened to me. I haven't had any traumas. So then as I start talking with him, I start kind of fine tuning the question. I said, well, have you ever had any surgeries? Oh yeah. When I was in high school, I um, had a terrible football injury and I was in traction for three months. Oh, oh yes, that's right. I had, oh yeah, I had, a, I had a little, a benign brain tumor that needed to be removed. Mm. Okay. Oh, by the way, when I was, um, when I was 10, I nearly drowned. Mm. Now, I mean, now some of us may sit here and go, well, of course those were traumatic, but you know what? He didn't perceive them necessarily as having impacted him, mm. but they actually did because they impacted his body. Mm. And you know, the models that I bring forward in the world, the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model is a body-centered intervention, right? And so you may think that nothing's happened, but your body experienced it, and this is important, as a life or death experience, 
we call it like an inescapable attack. If you fall into a pool and you nearly drown, then you may have been struggling for your life for a few moments before someone pulled you out, right? Mm -hmm. So those moments of distress, your body's going, holy molies, I'm going to die. And so then how does that affect the, the individual in terms of the autonomic nervous system? And so we have, there's many, many fancy theories, but we can go into a state of, of freeze. We also call it dissociation where we then become numb. So then we don't experience the world as acutely. So we walk through life, experiencing life, but sometimes some of life's ingredients, the good parts of life, the challenging parts of life don't get in. And we are pretty much living kind of a disconnected self as we walk through life. Mm, mm. So, so connecting those dots, Christine, are so important for all of us. And also for your listeners to know if those things happen to you, there may be a physiological origin to this that it had to do with the body experiencing this inescapable attack that your brain doesn't necessarily perceive as being life-threatening because maybe you survived, but there was a toll that was played out in your body. This is so important. We, my husband and I especially teach a lot about getting, moving things out of the body. Cause I think a lot of people think that if they've talked about it in therapy and it's in the past, then it should be fine. But from what I've learned and from my own experience with trauma, trauma can get really stored in the body, stored in, in the, like, I don't know where it gets stored. I've heard the cellular tissue of the body. And one of the ways that we need to release trauma is getting it out of the body. Can you talk a little bit more about how exactly trauma gets lodged in the body, and then what do we do about that? Uh, yes, well, you're talking my language, you know. And there's so first of all, trauma always is in the body because we are a mind-body connected being. <laughs> you know, we have that. You know, who was it? Descartes says, "I think, therefore I am." Well, you also sense, therefore you are. And I, I look at it that we have these different portals of how we experience life. Right? We can. It's what we think. It's, it's what we feel, maybe, um, if we're just talking about this virus right now. So what I'm thinking sometimes is I get a bit afraid, thinking how is this going to impact my family, and I'm hoping that no one becomes ill. Or if I am carrying the, the virus, I hope I don't impact anyone. Or maybe I'm thinking I'm sad because someone I, I love and care about is in the hospital right now, right? So those are thinking, right? So the feelings of that may be grief, may be um, anxiety. And so we may experience something that is really driving, you know, kind of our bus right now, because we also may be feeling a lot of fear. But then what do we sense? If I'm feeling anxious, my heart rate starts to beat fast. If I'm having a lot of fear, I can even say the word fear. And if you could see me, my, bo my body's getting a bit tense. Mm -hmm. You can my feel body. it in my belly. Yeah. yeah. You can feel the, you know, the body. So there's, so think about that anything that we think and that we feel, we also sense it also can get encoded into the body. And we're actually elegantly designed this way. It's not a bad thing. So there, there we have a part of our brain um, called the amygdala. And, you know, um, one of your staff members has taken my training. I, I call her Amy G for short. So the amygdala is part of <laughs> Yeah, Amy G. So Amy G remembers every bad thing that's ever happened to us. Oh, good old Amy G. Amy, yeah. a good friend. <laughs> and she is a good friend. So let's say that if I was bitten by a snake when I was a little girl and I walk into a room and I see a black thing on the floor and I, I, I look at it and all of a sudden my heart rate starts beating fast and I want to run the other way. And then I go, oh, wait a second. That's an electrical cord, not a black snake. So she's designed to remember these bad things to keep us alive. We are designed for survival, mm. right? 
So that's why she's going to remember those things and encode them. So when we've had traumatic experiences, sometimes we don't remember the whole story about what's happened to us, especially when we were little. Um, but it happens also when we're as adults. But the the memory gets um, encoded into our brain as just kind of a, a bucket load of sensations. So and sensations can like say you were in a fire and all of a sudden you're at a barbecue and you smell smoke and all of a sudden you start to shake and you tell your partner, let's get the heck out of here. There's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize that this multi-sensory experience that Amy G is remembering is smoke because she's generalizing it now to any time that you smell smoke, your body has a reaction. I imagine that could work in walking into a room full of people. If your trauma was people hurt you, then you're not feeling yeah. safe in your home. Then, then just that that could create. Amy G could be like, "Oh, people, anxiety needs to happen right now because yeah. I could be hurt." Well, you know, I have, we had a training once. I um, and I often bring this up as an example. And we have a really lovely person that's actually our chief executive officer of our organization, Michael Sapp. And he was at his very very first training. This was ten years ago. And he, you know, there's there's more. Uh, women that are therapists than men usually. And so there was probably maybe three men in the room and there were maybe 25 women. And we were talking about this very subject. And this woman raises her hand. She goes, I know this may make no sense to you, but when you're talking, that man that's sitting behind me, I am so afraid I want to run out of the room. Mm -hmm. And Mike is sitting there going, oh no, what should I do? Should I leave the room or what? But she was open enough to express it because we're, we're having the conversation about it. So all of a sudden something made sense to her about how the body holds these memories, even though it had nothing to do with, with Mike, it had to do with just being a man. And yeah. that was something that was reminding her of the, the horrible trauma she had as a child that was perpetrated by a man. Mm. So the things you're talking about are exactly, exactly right. But I want to share with your listeners, there's two different kinds of memory that we talk about in our training. One's explicit memory and one's implicit memory. So explicit memory, like you may remember, oh, last year, this is what I did during the holidays, whether you were celebrating, you know, Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever your, your, your celebratory rituals are, and you remember who you were with. So you're remembering facts. Um, you may remember what you had for breakfast this morning. Now that's some factual memory about your life. And also when you think about what you did last year during the holidays, that's also your uh, autobiographical memory. So we, you know, so explicit um, memory doesn't start to really develop more fully until about the age of two. Does that mean you have no memories when you're one year old? If those of you that are listening have children, you know, one year olds are doing all sorts of things. So the other memory system is called implicit memory. And so we, ha it's also called procedural memory. It's called body memory. So implicit memory are those kinds of memories that are encoded in the body. So for example, most of us know how to ride a bike. So you may have learned when you were a child and you got on the bike and you practiced and then one day your parent lets you go and you're able to ride the bike all by yourself. So maybe you haven't ridden a bike in 10 years, but all of a sudden there's a bike there, you decide to ride it. Do you have to learn how to ride the bike all over again? Of course not, because you have an implicit memory, like a template inside your body that knows what to do when you, when you get on a bike. So the reason why implicit memory is so important when we're talking about trauma is because that's where all the multisensory experiences live. Mm -hmm. The smell, the touch, the sound, the things that could be connected to your traumatic experiences. So Amy, Amy G sounds the alarm. And all of a sudden, then there is this disbursement, this inside of our body of the multisensory experiences connected to our trauma. Like, for example, an Iraq veteran may hear a helicopter. All of a sudden, he's ducked underneath the table, but he's in 
wherever he lives in California right now. And he goes, why did I just do that? That's crazy. But it, it's not crazy to Amy G because she sees the helicopter. There was an inescapable attack in Iraq where that person almost died. So she sounds the alarm. The survival brain takes over and goes into a flight response. So this is so common. It's so normal. And it's about keeping us alive. The hard thing about trauma is if we've had enough of them, as one woman said to me, I walk outside my door and it's like landmines of the sense, the sensory information yeah. um, that comes yep. in. Yep. Oh, so many questions. Okay. I didn't, and I forgot my pen. So I'm trying to keep all these in my head. <laughs> so one question, can you explain why some people don't remember trauma until later in life, like how they can forget right. that they were abused. Right. Well, so there's something that the term for it in psychology is called dissociation. So if the trauma is big enough, we actually have a process that happens in our brain where we dissociate from the um, explicit memory the narrative memory of that of that experience. So there are stress hormones that are elicited when the amygdala goes into into action because there's a threat. Right next to the amygdala is is something called the hippocampus. You can think about it kind of as a a library of memories. So if if the hippocampus and I'm making this very simple, it's, it's more complex than how I'm going to state it. It's kind of that the as as the stress hormones are released because there's a perceived threat, the um, the hippocampus then makes a decision whether to encode that into long term memory so that you can call it up, or if it's so extreme, it's not remembered explicitly as a narrative. It's remembered in procedural implicit memory as a multi-sensory experience. So that's why you may not know why when someone passes you and they're, let's say they're wearing um, Old Spice cologne and all of a sudden you're just at the grocery store buying, you know, frozen food and you're going, I got to get out of here. But maybe the per person who perpetrated a crime against you was wearing Old Spice, but you don't have the narrative memory because it was literally almost like seared out of your brain at that time because you dissociated. Yeah. So the body remembers, but the mind doesn't remember. So you can get a reminder. Um, some people call them triggers that may happen. And all of a sudden, maybe there's a sound, a smell, an image on a movie. And all of a sudden you're flooded back with a memory of something that you're saying, did that really happen to me? Or I'm, I'm imagining that happened to mm -hmm. me. And that's what's so hard about when we start explicitly remembering things. Sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes they may have some semblance of accuracy. And sometimes we're, we question whether they're accurate or not. So I can think of someone that I've worked with and she remembered she was sexually abused in her mid thirties. And but but she can track back and sex was kind of never that great. She could she basically left her body during it. It was like she wasn't fully there. So there was a dissociation. So she kind of always thought there was maybe something that was going on. But then when she remembered the trauma, that, that same thing came up. The doubt, did it really happen? Am I making this up? But then the other question, which I wanted to ask you is, she said, do I have to remember all the specific details to heal, heal this? Or do I just need to know that it happened? Christine, this is like the best question you've asked so far. <laughs> questions, Because I think that's what haunts people saying, if mm -hmm. I can't remember what happened to me, does that mean I'll never be able to heal? And that's what's so amazing about the body. 
So when someone says, I don't know what happened to me, but every time I smell, let's say Old Spice, my body gets so tense. So as a as a trauma therapist, that's where I start. I said, okay, well, let's just notice what's happening in the body right now. And so they go, well, I just feel tension. So there's a number of skills that we would use in the session. And so the person, and I said, was there any impulse? I'm just going to kind of fast forward to one called completing survival responses. I said, well, I'd say, is there any impulse or anything that your body wants to do? I don't know, Lane, but what I want to do is I want to, I want to just say, get away from me. And I want to push my hand away Mm. from the air. I said, well, can you allow your body right now to do exactly what your body wants to do? And, and just also formulate the words. If you want to say that those words, or if there's more coming out, you can say it out loud or, or just hear yourself saying it in your mind's eye. And so as the person is, let's say, moving their body in the way that they want to, what often happens then is they're completing a response that they were not able to do at the time of the assault. Even if they don't remember everything, the body remembers. There's even a book by... Um, Babette Rothschild called The Body Remembers. It's a very good book that I read like probably 20 years ago where she was one of the first individuals talking about this. And Mm. uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And my book is called Building Resilience to Trauma where we talk about this phenomenon, right? So when you do that and you're allowing the body to move, the body will often be able to have that energy being released. Like you said, the body, the energy comes out. And then oftentimes the body will start to shake or tingle People start to maybe yawn. They feel their body start to relax because their body can finally release what got stuck during the assault that may not be remembered, but the body remembers. And so the person may say, even though I don't remember, my body feels better. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just say, can you bring your attention to the sensations on the inside that tell you that your body feels better? And so the person's going, oh my gosh, I can't believe my shoulders. I can feel my body has more vitality. I can feel my blood flow. So in that moment of being able to complete that response that was that was not able to, to be completed, the person's body begins to change. And guess what happens when that, your thinking starts to change saying, mm-hmm. oh, I've heard people say, well, you know, now I can feel that no matter what happened to me, it's behind me and I can mm-hmm. be more present now and go forward in the future. Now I've fast forwarded the process in a few minutes that can take longer than that. And depending on what your life traumas have been, um, and if people have had a lot of developmental trauma, which we call you know, that too much too fast um, from childhood, and if it was repeated, that sometimes a person has to do a lot of learning how to read their nervous system to start paying attention to their well-being, their sensations of well-being, because the sensations, and that's the really important part of our model, it's called um, reading the nervous system. We also call it tracking, but it's really based on current neuroscience about introceptive awareness. Dr. Martin Paulus at UC San Diego has been doing some of the leading research on this. And he and basically, introceptive awareness just means that you can read your body state. Like if it's really hot outside, that you would know that you could go into the house and the air conditioning, or you would go sit underneath a tree, or if you had a sweater on, you'd take the sweater off. So when we have that body awareness, then we take an action. People who can do that tend to have better impulse control and also can control their emotions better. So, you know, some of you may be sitting there going, well, oh my goodness, I don't know if I have interceptive awareness so I can read my nervous system. Not to worry because we can learn to do it better so that we can be in better control of our emotions and our thoughts mm-hmm. by learning how to start sensing our well-being on the inside. So 
Because hmm. my listeners love how. They, they really get it. I know they really get it awareness. But yeah. it's like how, because I, I, so many of our listeners have been in therapy for years and they've read the self-help books and they've done the courses, but they still have crippling anxiety. Not crippling, but sometimes crippling, sometimes anxiety just gets in the way of life. They still have these triggers that they just can't get to the other side of because they haven't fully released the trauma from their body. So how does one do this? I don't know. You're asking me a lot of good questions, Christine. I can't categorize the best one anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So so number one is that I'm going to just talk a little bit about the brain. And some of you may know about this already, but let me just say it very simply. Think about that we have three parts of our brain. We have the survival brain. And that's the part of our brain that carries out what we call the fight, flight, and freeze response if we are in danger. It happens automatically without thinking, and it is triggered by the limbic system, the amygdala, is in the limbic system. So the limbic system is kind of our seat of emotional expression, and it has many parts of our brain that help us to execute and to be um, to set off the alarm to when we need to get to safety, which is when the survival brain gets gets triggered, right? And then the third part of the brain is the cortex, and that's your seat of executive functioning. It's like, oh, I can organize my day. I can um, think about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight. Um, I can hopefully be a person who shows up for meetings and have a semblance of being able to contribute. So if you think about these three parts of the brain, if the amygdala triggers the the survival brain to take action, um, it's because it needs to do it quickly. So the survival brain doesn't respond to conscious thinking. So if you say, for example, if you're anxious, have you ever said, stop being anxious? And were you able to do it? You're using your cognition to talk about a part of the brain that has to do with survival that's not about thinking, but it's about sensing. So this is a key component to dealing with your anxiety. So when you have anxiety, there's some simple skills that we teach. First of all, number one is reading the nervous system. So you may say, oh, where's my anxiety? Oh, I feel it. My heart rate, my heart starts to beat fast. I get tense muscles. So you're reading your nervous system. That's good. But the most important thing about the models that we teach, the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model is helping you as a person, and we all can learn this, how to tell the difference between sensations of distress and sensations of well-being. So if I'm anxious and my heart starts beating fast and I start getting tense, the question might be as easy, is it any place in my body where I'm not feeling tension? I just worked with someone yesterday about this very issue about the virus. And they said, well, my feet feel fine. And I said, okay. Mm. I said, can you just draw your attention to your feet? Bring all your awareness to your feet. And if you want to, you can even move your feet a little bit as we're talking. You know, we're doing this through Zoom. And she said, oh. And all of a sudden, I heard her take a deeper breath. I said, did you just take a deeper breath? She goes, yeah. She goes, I don't feel the tightness anymore in my chest. I said, well, can you just pay attention to what you are sensing now? And she said, well, my muscles are relaxing. She goes, it's kind of like magic. (laughs) I said, well, it can Mm. be. But this is of your own accord. You're doing this yourself, right? Now that's reading the nervous system. But then reading the nervous system is with every one of our skills. We have the wellness skills of the model, which is what I'll focus on with our conversation today. They're very simple. And the second skill is the best way to learn how to read the nervous system is through a personal resource. 
And so what are personal resources? They can be anything. It can be a spiritual belief. It can be a person, a place, a thing. I got a little multi-poo dog that she's that he sits on my lap and all my worries in the world just go right away. <laughs> and so the difference is that's a thought. My worries go away. Well, how do I know inside my body that the worries have gone away? Oh, because my, my muscles are more relaxed. My shoulders come down. I take a deeper breath and my heart rate feels more steady. So that noticing, that interceptive awareness is kind of the gold nugget of, our, of the way we're designed. And that's what I would encourage all of your clients that are listening and your community to, listen, to start paying attention and starting to tell the difference between those sensations of well-being and distress. But a resource is a perfect way. Now, Christine, can I ask you a question? Would that be okay if I asked you of one? Of course. So um, when I'm talking about resources, can you think about one resource that you have? Mm. Well, one thing that really works well for me is putting one hand on my heart and one hand on my belly and taking oh, a nice deep breath. Well, so I'm wondering, could you, would it be possible, even though I can't see you, can you do that right now? Yeah, absolutely. And so to notice you're putting your, your one hand on your chest, the other on your belly, and then just pay attention then to what happens on the inside as you do that. Uh, my breath slows down. So noticing the slowing down of your breath and what about your heart rate? How does that feel right now? It's slowing down as well. Slowing down. And how about your muscles? Softening. Softening. So I'm going to invite you to notice all those things you just reported to me for just a second or so. And Christine, that's your sensations of well-being. Mm -hmm. Look how easily, that's a, that sounds like that's a practice that you do. Mm -hmm. and that's something that you can call up at any time as this body-centered resource and to notice the sensations connected to it. That's like saving it to your hard drive. And that you can, the more that you do that, there's a, a theory called Hebbian's theory that says the brain cells that fire together, wire together. So when you bring it to sensation and you just experienced what you did and you, and you really sense into it, those brain cells are firing and you're creating stronger pathways for your well-being. Mm. Mm. And that's how we heal. That's how we heal. And the thing about it, we could do it for ourselves. So there's, I mean, I'm here, I'm a therapist. I believe in therapy so much, but I also believe in everyone's ability who's listening to do this on their own. And we have, you know, we have our, one of our first um, randomized controlled trials were published in January by Lindy Grabby from Emory University. And she did this with a group of, of um, of um, nurses who had really high rates of burnout and post-traumatic stress. And, oh my gosh, these poor nurses, I can't even imagine how they are now. This was before the Ebola virus, before uh, the COVID-19. Mm -hmm. But what she found, she just did a three-hour training for these nurses, learning the basic skills. And she went and looked at their, um, she did all these kind of measures of well-being and, and resiliency. And after just these three hours, she went back one week, three months and one year. And at one week and three months, they were about the same. There was a 62% improvement in well-being. But after a year, it was 80%. And I said, Lindy, how did that happen? She said, because they continued to use the skills. And the more they used it, the more they were laying down these pathways of resiliency. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to encourage all of your listeners. We have an app that's completely free. It's called iChill. We have it in English, and by the end of this next week, it's going to be out in Spanish, and that you can listen to uh, the, how to 
cultivate the wellness skills of this model. And some of the information that I'm sharing with you today is all in the app. So you can, if you That's have a great. smartphone, you can get it. And I really encourage you to, to listen to it or to, you can read it if you don't want to listen to it. Some people actually record or have somebody who's beloved to them record the scripts so that they can hear voices of their beloveds as they're helping them um, get back into their, what we call the resilience zone. Um, so I really encourage you to do that. The voice of the iChill app is mine. So if you don't like my voice, you're in trouble. <laughs> oh, you have a lovely voice. I love it. I just, I just downloaded as, as we were, as we were talking and this is so great because I'm always looking for resources for people because I, I really feel the reason why people get so stuck is, is unprocessed trauma and you can do all the positive thinking in the world, but if you don't know how to work with the brain and work with the body, um, and work with the, I think the inner child that, that part of us, that's just deep sensitivity, then it's hard to feel like you're moving forward. And I feel like a lot of people just get stuck. So, so just to review a couple of key things you said, you don't have to remember specifics in order to heal. No, something doesn't have to be this massive event. Like you were highly physically abused for it to be traumatic. Exactly. The body remembers. And so it doesn't matter how much awareness you have. If you aren't working with the sensations in the body, you're not going to get to where you want to go in terms of feeling fully liberated. Well, I think I would probably say it maybe a little bit differently. Yes, please do. I'd probably say that I think that we can have insight into what happened to us. And I think insight is really powerful. And also I think being witnessed, if you have someone that you can share a very guarded story for when you were abused... Because I think if a person is really with intention and kindness listening to you, that you're not alone with a story that you shouldered by yourself, especially any kind of trauma, but especially mm-hmm. childhood trauma, that that can be liberating for individuals. But I think that with, you know, and people often say this to me, Christine, so I'm also going to agree with you as well, is that people have gone to many therapists, but that, like you said in the beginning, but something still doesn't leave them. It's like that, that mm-hmm. thing, but they don't know how to get to it. And I think working with the body is that thing. It is the way mm-hmm. of getting it to maybe feel fuller liberation within the body. Mm. So that can be very powerful. And I think the other thing that I really want to say to people that, you know, here I've been trained in so many different trauma therapies, which I really feel like everything that I've ever learned has informed what I'm doing now. But I think that in West, in the Western world, we've left out the body. But if we look at some of the ancient practices, like um, let's say, for example, Tai Chi, and those kinds of movements are really working with the body, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Even things that we might look at as ancient practices like Kung Fu, things that we think, well, are those violent? They actually are sometimes nonviolent ways of working with the body to let some energies out. Or even things as simple as drumming, that many cultures in the world have drumming as so integral as part of their um their healing practices, that those kinds of things move the body in ways that maybe um, less explicitly, but more implicitly work with the body to release things that happen on the inside. Yeah. My husband and I at our events teach breath work. Well, he, he mostly teaches it and he's trained in breath work and also some shamanism. And we've seen miraculous things happen through breath work and then him working with the body and breath and drumming and music and people feel liberated and they don't even know what's coming out of the body. And that's the thing. They don't need to know, but something something moves and something shifts. And it's just, it's always beautiful to watch because I feel like the body has infinite wisdom. And when we really listen to it and get out of the way and allow it to 
release and however it needs to release and, and then resource it, that the body can really be our ally in so many ways. I think you're right. And I often, I often say, one of the things I say similar to what you just said is that, you know, the body has a wisdom that words cannot speak. Mm. So that is something that, you know, I embrace, but, you know, could I say something that would be all right about breath? Yes. It's important to know that, you know, we've taken our model so many places around the world and myself, I believe in, in breath work can be very powerful and transformative. But what I've also learned is for some people bringing attention to breath actually is re-traumatizing. As for some of us, especially if we've had early childhood trauma, and the only thing that we remember is those sensations that bringing attention to breath actually can cause some people to go into a traumatic flashback. And because mindfulness is so a part of our culture now, which I also really respect and appreciate as being one of the modalities that helps people, I'll often say if I'm doing any kind of work that has to pay attention to breath to know, first of all, that a person can keep their eyes open or closed, especially I think I've worked so much with sexual violence that oftentimes a perpetrator will say, close your eyes. So to give people the choice because Mm -hmm. trauma has taken all of our choice away. Mm. And I say it can be helpful for many of us to pay attention to breath, but if it's not in your case, just bring your attention to something that may be inside or outside your body that is more comforting for you. Mm-hmm. Happen if you don't necessarily pay attention to the breath, the person will take a breath that actually will relax the body, but the paying attention to it for some, it's still a small percentage, but I've seen it happen so much, especially when I worked with um, veterans of the wars, because uh, if they were in some kind of combat and let's say they were in an IED explosion, that what oftentimes they remember is not the explicit memories, but the multisensory experience and fast breathing as part of it. Um, you know, we call it, you know, when you tachycardia Mm -hmm. and when you bring attention to breath, it can actually trigger that kind of sensory experience. Yes. Yes. I've seen it happen. (laughs) We learned that the hard way in a workshop once. And, and about it to avoid the the hard of of bumping into it when you didn't know. Yes. Yes. We, we did bump into it and uh, were able to get the person out of the room. It actually was a beautiful healing experience in, in the end. And so now we're careful to always offer alternatives and let people use their own intuition. So I want to go back to resourcing, as I know this is so important. And it's something that many therapists have, not many, actually just one therapist in particular has really helped me with is learning how to resource myself. I'd love for you to explain that again, just because I know that that's really important. I really want people to hear it and maybe give a couple more examples of how to do that. So, I mean, you had that lovely resource that was a body-centered resource, but Mm. many times I'll I'll give you an example. So a resource is anything. It really is anything. And and you can't, like I say, if I say to you, oh, Christine, I want you to um, know my granddaughter because she's going to be a resource for you. Well, guess what? She may be a resource for me, but she may not be a resource Mm -hmm. for you. And so many times when I've seen different kinds of modalities, people sometimes direct a resource for people. And I've learned that is not the right way to go. You need to to kind of cultivate and ask people what their resource is. So, um, so it can be anything. Um, I often hear people say their um, family member could be like a grandmother or, or a child. 
Um, like if you were to ask me right now, what a resource, what a, one of my most wonderful resources is my granddaughter. Her name is Madison and she's three. Mm. And if I think about her and her little, little personality and think about how hopefully in the future, she's going to be able to come and visit me after we get off this uh, mm-hmm. quarantine that we're in. Um, I just feel warmth that kind of emanates from my heart and goes down my arms. So I always want to sense into what my resource um, is as I describe it or think about the resource. Because remember, the sensory part is one of the most important parts of when you call up the resource to notice what happens on the inside. But because I've been to so many crises around the world, there's also resourcing after a crisis or right now during one, because we're in the midst of one that we're all living through right now. So I might ask a person, well, tell me, what what uplifts you? What gives you courage or strength? Or what has helped you get through hard times in the past? Because that's calling up something that's already in the memory banks of that person, right? So because I've been to so many disasters, you know, I've been to so, you know, been to China, Haiti, Nepal after their earthquakes. Um, I've sadly responded to many of the mass shootings in the country. Um, but so the question becomes, um, so what is helping you get through? That's one of the most important ones. And I can mm. think of a woman in China. She had an effigy of the Buddha around her neck. She touched the effigy of the Buddha and she said, oh, the teachings of Buddha are helping me get through. Now I'm working with a translator. I don't speak Chinese. So I asked my translator, I said, can, can she tell me more about which teachings are important to her right now? It's called resource intensification. It's not just saying Buddha or the teachings of Buddha, but what is it about the teachings of Buddha? So you want to expand it, kind of like those taffy machines, so that people can get more details of their resource. And then I would say to her, I said to her, and so as you're telling me about the teachings of Buddha, so um, I'm, what are you aware of on the inside? And she said, oh, I noticed I took a breath, but she put her hand, just like you said, you put your hand to your chest, which is one of the universal gestures I see all over the world <laughs> about something that's dear to them. And she said, the teachings of Buddha, and they're right here in my heart. And so that was in China. But in Haiti, after the earthquake there, I asked the same question through a Creole translator. And I said, what's helping you, you know, get through right now? Um, Haitians can be very boisterous in their expression. And this woman kind of sat up, put her hand to her heart again. Well, I got Jesus right here in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) That's a resource. (laughs) She said, and she took a deep breath and you just saw her whole body relax, similar to the lady in China. Mm. they're different resources yeah so they're the things that really you know give us that strength hope uplifts us calms us i will say something too about resourcing let's say you're a person um that tends to get really anxious so you may want to think about a calming resource for you what calms you but there's some people like me for example i tend to um uh, I love roller coasters, and that's a resource for me. But it oh wow, I'm the opposite. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't calm my. It doesn't make me take that deep breath. My breath actually gets a little bit more excited, but not negatively so. It's very pleasant. So we can have pleasant sensations connected to our heart rate, our breath being a little faster. That's connected to a resource that's ex- excitatory. Like um, if I asked your your listeners, um, do you remember when you fell in love? for the first time. And when you saw that person and what happened on the inside, it's usually we don't get really calm. We usually, our heart rate starts going, oh, little skips a beat, right? That we get a little excited and yet it's very pleasant. 
Yeah, I, I love that. And can resources can be external things too. Like I, I have a panda bear, or maybe it's how it feels. I have a panda bear that my dad gave me the day of my birth, and I still have it. And oh, I would say that's one of my resources. Is I grab it, and it just that's a great resource. Mm. It can be external, of course, or internal. Mm. We have strong muscles. It can be our compassion. Mm. But often, you know, every now and then, and some of your listeners may be saying, "I don't know if I have a resource." Every now and then I run across people that have a hard time thinking of what it might be. So just to know too, that you can have imagined resources. Like I always say, I have a friend who loves George Clooney. She was so upset when he got married. <laughs> she would accept, think that she had a relationship with George Clooney. I mean, she's a very normal person, yet she loved him. And so if I asked her about one of her resources, it would be George Clooney, even though she's never met him. But there's something about his nature that really strikes her and makes her feel calmer. So. Well, I have, I have met George Clooney and had a beautiful little, short little thing. So I'll have to talk well, to your you friend go. and she you have to talk to one degree of separation. Right. So kinds of experiences that you may have yeah. that can be imagined for children. And some of you probably have children. These are wonderful things to do with kids. I love it. You know, we have a project with um, Emory University through the Center of Contemplative Science that actually was inspired by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In fact, last year at this time, I was in India, in New Delhi, where I got to meet His Holiness. Not to say that he's the same as George Clooney, Christina, but, you know, His Holiness George Clooney, depending on what you say. Um, But uh, anyway... um, so we have a program, Emory University has a program inspired by His Holiness. It's called C-Learning, S-E-E Learning Program, Emory University. I want to just tell your listeners, um, some of them may be teachers. So it's a curriculum for children K through 12, and it includes how we teach children about compassion and ethics. And His Holiness was worried about with this kind of disintegration of organized religions, how are kids learning about compassion ethics from a secular perspective? So his idea was to bring the experts of social and emotional learning together that we already know help children um, be able to identify emotions and have better social engagement. But one of the key people that was involved with the project had been as one of our our community resiliency model teachers and called me and said, Elaine, I've just got, I'm in charge of this project and I really see that we need to integrate the body, will you come out to Emory and talk to the powers to be there about why this might be important, besides my opinion. So his name is Brendan Ozawa Silva. I actually talked to him this morning. Anyway, so they integrated our community resiliency model into the C-Learning program. It's called mm-hmm. Chapter 2. But what I love about it, it's completely free. So if you have kids at home and you're trying to figure out what to do with them, because you're going to be doing this for quite a while, um, you might want to go t- and you can register online and take their little orientation for free. And then they will, you'll get to download their little books for, they have ones for early, ki- early childhood and mid-childhood. They don't have the adolescent one on board yet, but they will. But it gives activities on how to integrate all the things I'm talking to you with kids. Mm-hmm. I love this. Well, I'm just going to have to have you back, Elaine, because there's, I wanted to get into your six skills of the community resilience model. There was more I wanted to get into, but as, as we wrap up, I would love to talk about COVID-19 and this collective, we could call it collective trauma. I'm calling it a collective opportunity and that we're in right now. What are some things that people can do to resource themselves during this time? Because That's a great question. Yeah, I know for me, especially as an empath, I, um, and when I have you back, if you're willing to come back, I'd love I to talk to you about how much empathy is attached to trauma. <laughs> Because I think there's a connection. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I actually just, and I'll send it to Jill so she can get it to you. I don't know if I, you're on my email string. I actually just created this handout about it. Mm. And I, I'll, ta- I'll just talk briefly about it. And first of all, some of us may, 
I'm going to tell you about three things I haven't, do I have time? I don't know how much time I have. Tell me how much time I have. Like eight more minutes. Okay. I can do it quickly. So when in our model, we talk about three zones of being one is our resilient zone or okay zone. And this is like when we're at our best self, it doesn't mean we're always happy or calm. We can actually even be annoyed or sad, but we can handle what the world is throwing at us. But then we have the high zone and that's when we're like, angry. We're like, someone comes in, we like, what are you asking me that for? Sometimes when we're in the high zone, we regret what we've said to the people that we care about. And then there's the low zone. We're disconnected. We're numb. We don't want to get out of bed. And so these are kind of our three states of being. And you may be thinking listeners, well, am I in my high zone, my low zone, or my resilient zone or okay zone? Because it's important to know where you are. For instance, if you're feeling the heart rate and muscles tense, you could be in your high zone. So the um, so right now with the, with the COVID-19, some of us are, are living in our high and low zones. And if we are in those zones, we're not as connected to our families, to people that we care about. And sometimes because there's distance in our connections, of course, we can call them, we can Zoom. It's a, it's a change. It's a difference. Um, so it's, it's very important that we really learn how to get into our resilient zone or okay zone. So first you have to even know that you're out. And that's why it's important to tell the difference between sensations of d- distress and well-being, because then you can, by choice, pay attention to your well-being. But I can't just say, oh, Lane, pay attention to your well-being if I'm not sensing that, because I'm anxious because I don't know how my daughter is who's in another part of California. So, but what I can do is I can actively do one of the skills. And you all have skills that are listening. You have, if they've been working with you, Christina, they have coaching skills, right? That you've taught them a whole myriad of different things that they can do, as well as the skills that they can learn from our iChill app. But one of the most important things is to sense your well-being. Mm-hmm. So if that means that the only way you can do that is you think about, let's say like me, my granddaughter, or you have that body position that you get yourself into, or you bring out that panda bear, really try to have moments, we call them resiliency pauses, so that you can pay attention to what else is true right now. You know, like what hasn't changed since this all happened? Mm -hmm. Do you still have people that you love in your life? Those kinds of things to cultivate that, but to have a practice of it, because there's so much that's knocking us out of our zones right now. Yes. And that when you feel even a droplet of well-being, bring your attention there and notice what that feels like on the inside to f- sense that droplet of well-being. Mm-hmm. I had someone say to me, um, we did a training this weekend. She said, well, you know, I can't believe it, but I actually think I f- sense a little bit of hope. And I asked her, well, where in your body do you feel that? And she pointed to her chest, like with her finger and like pointed. I said, is it just, she goes, but it's small. I said, can you just notice that you're putting your finger on your chest? Yes. And what happens when you do that? She goes, oh, it's spreading. It's bigger now. I can sense my hope spreading. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have to do right now. And also, I think we also just have to be aware that it's okay if we're feeling a little out of our zone. We can't be like this perfect person all the time in, in, you know, responding to our children or our partner in ways that are just, you know, equanimity and compassion. Sometimes we're going to get bumped out. Bump, bumping out of our resilient zone is the human experience. Yes. We all get bumped out, but it's how we get back in again. Because I think if we can nurture our self-compassion, this is what I've learned about our model that we've taken all over the world. I think this is why we were embraced by His Holiness, Dalai Lama, who's such a... Um, Um, person who cultivates compassion is that when we can sense our compassion in our body, we have self-compassion and we have more compassion for others. Mm -hmm. 
So right now, what I wish for all of you is to have self-compassion. Mm. How do we do that? By paying attention to our well-being, by sensing it. And then we can have that expand out to others. Mm. We first have to know that we're out of our well-being in order to be able right. to sometimes be able to cultivate the resources that many of you have so many already, but bring them out. Like a little lady in the Philippines told me after Typhoon Hunan told one of our trainers said, thank you for reminding me what I already knew, but had forgotten. Oh, that makes me tear up. I love that. Oh, so beautiful. Oh, Elaine, you are just a gem. I hope that you'd be willing to come back because I want to unpack more of this. For now, um, I want to send people to the iChill app so they can use that. Where else can they learn? They can get your book, um, Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. They can get that. Where else can they connect with you and learn more? Well, they also can come to www.traumaresourceinstitute.com, which is our website. And they can, um, it shows you how to have a a message to us. For example, we have, and we're doing many webinars as well. I'm doing one for the C-Learning Program, this uh, part two of, um, of two parts that we did for people working with children. So we'll be having ongoing webinars. And also, we've also just, um, and you, we've just moved entire training program to online. So some of you may be interested in taking one of our trainings and we'll be posting the online offerings in the next two weeks, but we'll be offering our trauma resiliency model level one for those of you that may be therapists or involved in coaching. And we also have a community resiliency model teacher training program where you can become your uh, community resiliency model teacher to Mm -hmm. spread this, this, these ideas throughout the world, like we are. Um, doing in in multitudes of ways right now. Mm, maybe signing up for that one. <laughs> thank I'll you. Have you, Christina? <laughs> have you? Oh, thank you so so much, Elaine. Um, would love to have you back. So thank you for the, just the work that you've done. I mean, I read your bio in the beginning of the show, and I think people really can feel you are a light worker. You are someone who's in the trenches and your passion and dedication to helping people get free is deeply touching and inspiring. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. And I just wish everyone well. I just want to say one more thing. I yes. didn't say enough about that. I know some of us may be grieving for people that are sick right now. And I just want to send my prayers to all of you, my, my thoughts, and to know that you're all in my heart if you're walking through some of the scariest part of this journey. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful way to complete. Thank you, Elaine.